1: Listeners are cautioned not to rely upon any statements made in resolving legal issues they may face, but instead to consult with their own attorney about specific situations. Attorneys are not engaged in providing legal services while appearing on the program and are not responsible in any manner for the consequences that may stem directly or indirectly from reliance on any statement made during this program.
0: Good morning, happy Friday, and welcome to Fed Talk. Today is July 26, 2019, and I am Natalia Castro from Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. We have a really good show for you guys today. We are having a federal employee roundtable, uh, reporter roundtable, where we will be discussing some of the big issues of 2019 so far and what we're going to be focusing on for the rest of the year. So I'm really excited to have three guests in studio with us today. First, let me introduce you guys to Jessica Burr, a senior reporter from Federal Times. Good morning, Jesse, and thank you so much for being here. Good morning. Thank you for inviting me. Next, we have Nicole Grisco, a reporter with Federal News Network. Nicole, welcome to the show and thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. And finally, we have Eric Wagner, a senior correspondent with government executive. Eric, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us.
2: Thanks. Nice to be here.
0: So before we dig in, I just want to remind everyone that Fed Talk is brought to you by Long Term Care Partners, LLC. Long Term Care Partners administers the Office of Personnel-sponsored federal long-term care insurance program. To learn more about them, visit ltcfeds.com today. Guys, thanks so much for being here. Um, We're going to kick it off just kind of starting with what is going on right now and what we think some of the big wins have been this year for federal employees. So I think we should just go down, give you guys each a chance to kind of introduce yourselves and talk about what you think some of these wins have been uh, this year so far.
3: Yeah, so I'm Jesse Burr. I'm the associate editor at Fed Times. Um, Definitely, I think, Probably the win that stands out the most for federal employees this year was the 1.9% pay raise. Um, took a little while getting there. It took about a month after Congress approved the pay raise for the administration to actually enact it. Um, but that's probably the biggest positive change that the federal employees
0: at large have seen this year. Awesome. Eric, your thoughts?
2: Uh, yeah. This is uh, Eric Wagner. I'm a staff correspondent and government executive. Um Another positive step, uh, it's not a done deal yet, but it seems that there is bipartisan support for uh, legislation to prevent lapses in appropriation.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think we're going to dive a little bit more into that in just a few minutes, so I'm excited to come back to that.
4: I'm Nicola Grisco. I am the reporter here at Federal News Network, and um, not to be redundant with what Jesse said about the pay raise, I do think that's a big win for federal employees, especially considering the president had proposed a pay freeze. And it looks likely that some of the federal employee advocates are going to continue to make that push for 2020. I guess the other thing I would add is maybe the budget. Again, it took a long time getting there, but um, agencies got, in many cases, a significant budget boost, not just defense, civilian agencies as well. And we have top line numbers that will hopefully set the course for 2020 and 2021. So there's a little bit of positivity there, too.
0: Awesome. So let's dive right into some of the, you know, hot legislation that's kind of permeating right now. Um, We're going into this August recess, but before we do, you know, there's definitely some movement going on in Congress, particularly with the budget, uh, which you kind of started bringing up Nicole. So if we want to talk a little bit more, I want to hear you guys' thoughts on where that's going. And, you know, we know that the House just passed something. Uh, what do we think is going to continue on with the Senate? And, you know, are we really going to have a good budget deal coming out?
3: Yeah, I think there's definitely um, some positive news in that front. The Democrats and Republicans have come to a basic agreement on what the top line numbers are going to be. Um, And so mostly now the work is going to be negotiating what happens in specific budget bills. Um, I think that reduces significantly the chances of another shutdown occurring and uh, makes sure that in some form the government will continue to operate. It just depends on what issues are going to be a priority for which group in terms of specific agencies and specific legislation.
0: Yeah, and uh, you know, as you mentioned, it's going to now really be about those specific appropriations measures. The House has already passed a good handful of appropriations measures. Uh, if you guys want to talk a little bit to what that has looked like and what that's going to mean for the Senate moving forward,
4: I would say the biggest appropriations bill that I know I've been watching and that will most likely matter to federal employees has been the Financial Services and General Government Appropriations Bill. It includes a pay raise for federal employees, a pretty significant one. It includes language that blocks the um, administration's proposed merger of the Office of Personnel Management with the General Services Administration. There's also language in there that says explicitly, look, we don't want to see furloughs happen at OPM because of anything that might be going on with the merger. Um, You know, more funding for the IRS and Treasury and some other agencies in there as well. So that's one that has passed the House and has yet to we haven't heard anything about what the Senate is thinking with the pay raise. I think we've heard some mutterings, maybe, but we really haven't seen any action at all from the Senate.
2: Um, I think one other element uh, of the budget deal that uh, is good for federal employees is that the offsets envisioned in this agreement, you know, they don't take place for several, several years. And, in, you know, in past budget deals, when there have been immediate offsets, they often happened at the expense of federal workers, either via pay freezes or changes to their retirement uh, programs.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. Um, and so, you know, kind of going back to now the... Battle is going to be over these appropriations bills. Uh, like you know, you know, like I mentioned, the House has passed a handful of bills, and even though we haven't heard much from the Senate, I'm curious as to whether or not you guys think there is potential for Republicans to jump on board with any of the bills that are coming out of the House.
3: Well, I think, um, and another bill that I've been watching too for federal employees, surprisingly, is actually the Defense Authorization Bill because that could actually include. Uh, Provision for 12 weeks of paid family leave, which a lot of federal employees have been clamoring for, is so that's not guaranteed at the moment. Um, but I think on the whole, none of these bills are going to get passed exactly as they are right now. That that almost mm-hmm. never happens. Um, it's going to depend on what each party and each chamber cares the most about. So, if the federal employee pay raise is something that uh, People who would normally oppose it have to spend more energy opposing something else that might pass through and stick with the bill, and it's a done deal. Um, it might prove something that some people want to oppose because they want to keep spending low.
2: Um, by that same token, um, you know it also depends on how much Senate Democrats want to fight for any individual measure, because, you know spending bills require 60 votes for cloture, so they need some Democratic votes to pass any uh, uh, spending measure in the Senate as well.
4: I would also say that on the pay raise issue, while, and I think this might be true for a lot of the negotiations that we see, the House, you know, mostly made up of Democrats at this point or having a Democratic majority, I think will automatically go higher than what we might see in the Senate. So, though the House has proposed one pay raise, maybe the Senate might come back with one that's a little lower than the proposal that's out there at this point, and then maybe they would negotiate from there. It is still really tough to say, I think, what the Senate will do because they just haven't had many open appropriations hearings at all at this point, and we haven't seen any markups or any legislative text at this point from that committee.
0: Yeah, um, those are all really good points. You know, I think now that a budget deal appears to have been struck and you know hopefully the senate will move forward on that i think that will open the door for the senate to take some action on these appropriations measures and you know hopefully could uh, mean that we avoid a situation like what we had this past year so guys you are listening to fed talk on federal news network 1500 a.m. we are up against our first break But we are going to continue this discussion with Jesse, Nicole, and Eric after a word from our sponsors. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Network 1500 AM. We are just diving into some of the big issues of the year and talking about some of the legislation that has been working through Congress um, in the last few weeks. And one of them is, or Several of them are some legislation that has been put forward to end government shutdowns. And Eric alluded to this earlier, how we kind of have for, I think, the first time in a long time, a bipartisan investment in making sure those long, difficult government shutdowns don't happen again. And so um, I would like to hear from you guys about some of the different pieces of legislation kind of percolating and... If any of them actually have a chance of passing so that we can avoid some of those shutdowns? The legislation almost brings stuff back to the way it used to be
3: before 1980. Um, so prior to then, if Congress didn't pass appropriations legislation, agencies would just kind of keep going at the same rate that they did before and assume that Congress would work out the details later. Um, and then in 1980, the then Attorney General said, nope, that. Contradicts the Anti-Deficiency Act. You can't do that. You have to shut down. Um, so I think a lot of this legislation is just kind of trying to go back to letting agencies operate at a basic level once Congress fails to pass appropriations.
4: Yeah, I think um, beyond some of the bills that we've seen, either you know allowing for an automatic continuing resolution to kick in absent a full-on budget deal or spending deal. We've also seen other bills that would try to mitigate some of the impacts that government shutdowns would have specifically on federal employees. There's been a couple of pieces of legislation out there, um, bipartisan pieces of legislation that would protect federal employees' health insurance during shutdowns, especially ones that continue for as long as the last one, um, legislation that would protect you know, their long-term care insurance and other health benefits that they might get. So I think that's another uh, result that we've seen, especially because of this past
0: 35-day shutdown. Yeah. Eric, do you have anything to add?
2: Um, yes. Also, you know, there's a lot of this going on in Congress, and it's hard to say which of these measures may uh, make it into law. But in the courts, there's also a, uh, a case where uh, federal employee unions are arguing that um the idea of having uh, accepted employees who are forced to work without pay during a lapse in appropriations that in of, it, in of itself is a violation of the anti-deficiency act and it's hard to say what will happen there but that's another avenue where people are looking to break through this gridlock
3: it will also be intriguing if uh, legislation passes that completely ends the possibility of shutdowns in the future does that change what the appropriations process looks like? Because suddenly the bills for appropriations are not as uh, need to pass. They don't have as much impetus behind them. So does that change the way that Congress puts riders on those bills, the way they approach budgeting season? All of this could completely change the way we've seen before.
0: Yeah, I think that's probably uh, for me, you know, looking at the federal community, that's my big concern is, you know, if. We try to end shutdowns without reforming the appropriations process or without encouraging members of Congress to actually do the appropriations con, con, uh, you know process, if that's just putting a band-aid on a really big issue here, that is, you know, the government needs to be funded. That is one of the clear duties of Congress. And so I think that there are um, some concerns there, while well, there's also some optimism in the idea that federal employees won't be used as pawns and what is essentially a political battle. Uh, You know, uh, one thing I wanted to hit on with the appropriations process last year, it was that DHS funding bill that was the real battleground for the House and the Senate and the White House and ended up you know, kind of causing a big part of this shutdown. Do you guys anticipate that there will be, and it could be DHS again, um, but one specific appropriations measure that kind of holds up the whole process?
2: I think that's less likely this year, uh, primarily because one of the uh, apparent provisions of this you know, agreement on the budget caps is that uh, there would not be new policy riders such as the Democrats' efforts to prevent the Trump administration from diverting money from the Defense Department to uh, help fund the border wall.
4: I have to say, I don't think we can predict any of this anymore. Um, (laughs) You know, the president said that he would never sign a budget deal. I think it was last year, uh, the final omnibus that got us, you know, through the shutdown scare again, said he would never sign anything like that remotely again. And then the, you know, uh, Bipartisan Budget Act before this most recent Bipartisan Budget Act, he said he would never, you know, look at something like this again, and here we are. I don't know that we can necessarily predict anything, um, particularly with this administration, uh, you know, currently in the White House. And I think a lot of it depends maybe on, you know, what happens in the next couple of months. And I think anything can change, especially with with President Trump.
3: Especially if this becomes the last big there-could-be-a-shutdown budget battle. Uh, suddenly some people might want to try to use it to get the things they absolutely want passed to get
0: through. I think that's all very good points. I definitely agree. I think that this you know, with the current political climate, it's really difficult to make those predictions. Uh, But one thing that is, you know, somewhat solid in the House and the Senate is the NDAA. Uh, You know, the House has passed some legislation, the Senate has some legislation, and so it appears in September, kind of after this August recess, they're going to come together and make some compromises. So I wanted to kind of hit on some of the big provisions in there. I know we've already kind of sprinkled them into some of these other discussions, but if you guys can can hit on some of the big things in the House and the Senate and what they mean for federal employees. Yeah, so I already uh,
3: mentioned that there's the family leave bill that's been added to that in the House version. Um, There's also another provision that is uh, trying to block the merger of the General Services Administration and Office of Personnel Management, Um, so doubling down on really trying to resist that uh, policy.
0: Yeah, I think the OPM GSA merger has been a really big issue so far in the first six months of 2019. If one of you guys, just for anyone at home who might not be totally aware of what's going on there, if someone could just give a little bit of an overview about what that battle is looking like.
4: Yeah, so uh, the Trump administration uh, back in June 2018, so almost a year ago at this point, uh, publicly released its plan to – reorganize multiple functions of OPM. And the basic outline there is that it would move uh, the security clearance, the entire security clearance program to DOD, which is well on its way. Um, That executive order that I knew I was waiting for uh, to come out to really finalize the move has been signed and DOD and OPM are making plans to move it. The other piece of that is moving OPMs, health insurance, and retirement functions to GSA, and then other uh, HR policy and other sort of federal employee policy work other places. So some of it would go to GSA, and then some work would be built out in an office within the Office of Management and Budget. And that proposal has been kind of fleshed out and reworked a little bit as this has been as this debate has been going on. So those are the the big pieces in play. Um, a lot of federal employee unions and associations dislike this concept. They say there's not enough information from the administration about why this is needed and what really would improve. On the other hand, the Trump administration has really said, "Well, OPM's IT is really struggling and." It's just time for a change. They also say that OPM has been unable to uh, focus on its core mission because of some of the IT distractions, the cyber breach, the security clearance backlog. And so this is its proposal to focus more on um, comprehensive workforce reforms.
2: I think another uh, big sticking point in this uh, debate has been uh, part of the uh, Proposal that brings sort of OPM's policy arm into the Office of Management and Budget places all of OPM's existing regulatory authority in a non-Senate confirmed political appointee. So uh, basically, the you know Congress would have no oversight over this person who is responsible for government-wide regulations on federal workforce policy, and that ha- that alarms a lot of Democrats, uh, you know, even a few Republicans, and obviously the federal employee unions.
3: Yeah, and it's looking like um, at least somewhat a majority of Congress is not really feeling this proposal. They're not seeing what the purpose of it is um, and didn't look inclined to include funding in the um, appropriations bills to make that transition happen. And so the administration somewhat recently um, came out with a policy that if they don't get the funding to make the transition happen, they may have to furlough and potentially lay off 150 employees, in order to make up the difference of funding that they say that they're going to need to uh, be able to keep operations running.
0: Yeah, and I believe part of that issue is that ever since that security clearance move happened that Mm -hmm. Nicole was referencing, there is a... The OPM essentially doesn't have the finances that they acquired through that uh, security clearance process, and now they're in some financial deep water, and so I think that's part of what is raising the potential for furloughs.
3: And there's some vagueness about when they're actually going to not have that funding anymore because uh, the Department of Defense has said that they're going to be relying on OPM systems while they're working on setting up their own. So it could be many months before those systems lose the funding that OPM's talking about. It's really
2: interesting. And, you know, I think a week or two after the reports came out about the, uh, you know, the Threats of a furlough, you know, um, OPM uh, acting director Weikert, you know, sort of backed off that in a town hall with her employees, and so it's it's not really clear when they would need to furlough anyone. And on top of that, Congress in its house in the House appropriations package includes more than enough funding to cover the remaining deficit there. So um, people who are skeptical of this. Uh, merger plan ha- have also you know <clears throat> uh, they also s- believe that uh, the administration is sort of weaponizing any you know problem that happens at OPM to try to justify the merger rather than trying to actually uh, work to a solution within OPM
4: I would also say that on the question of when when these budget cuts would really hit and impact OPM, um, the administration has has told us that it would be a problem as soon as October first hits, and that even if there is not a permanent budget deal, full year 2020 budget deal in place for OPM by October first, the start of the fiscal year, that it would be in a problem. It would have a problem. Um, so, whether or not you know, that's entirely true and, and any of the, the numbers associated with that, I mean, we haven't, I don't think anyone has seen a lot of detail behind all of this, but that's the message that they're pushing is that we need some sort of solution now. And of course, there isn't a lot of time at this point.
0: Yeah, I think um, the lack of information has been a big issue, even for people who might be on board with this plan. Even a lot of Republicans, the lack of transparency has been frustrating, and uh, you know potentially could be why this doesn't go through. And I think that's why a lot of people on both sides have been on board and NDAA provision to block the OPM GSA merger. Uh, But that's not the only thing in the NDAA, obviously. I think, Nicole, you kind of hit on the shutdown insurance a little bit. Uh, The House included some information on that.
4: Yeah, it did. It included essentially what were standalone bills to protect federal employee health insurance. Basically, if the shutdown continues for, um, you know, multiple weeks, potentially two to three pay periods... Then federal employees who are enrolled in the federal health insurance program would enter no pay status, and so this bill would try to remedy that and essentially say, "Okay, look, you're you're still in good standing." You know, if you if a shutdown happens, um, there's provisions in there about being able to enroll dependents while this is happening. Uh, you know, if you have a child or there's some sort of other major event in your life, so that's another big piece that's at least in the in the house version
0: awesome well we are up against our second break we will continue this discussion after a quick break and a word from our sponsors you guys are listening to fed talk on federal news network 1500 a.m
1: Shaw, Bransford and Roth One team working all three branches Judicial, legislative, executive Judicial sb employment attorneys offer specialized legal representation for federal managers Legislative Lobbyists in government and public affairs advocating for corporate clients Executive Produces two free weekly newsletters, Fed manager and Fed agent Shaw, Bransford and Roth is your one destination for all three branches of government Online at shawbransford.com SBNR, client focused, results driven
0: Welcome back. Y'all are listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network 1500 AM. I am here with Jesse Burr, Nicole Grisco, and Eric Wagner talking about some of the hot issues for federal employees. We have been going through some of the NDAA provisions that are in the House and Senate and will be reconciled in likely, hopefully, September. To create a final NDAA, Uh, it is often used as a vehicle for general government provisions, and there has been some pretty cool stuff going on in there. Uh, Next one I wanted to hit on with you guys was that there has been conversations and, you know, a provision in the House bill for MSPB relief. For some of the whistleblowers in the federal community. Um, I know this has been kind of an important one considering the MSPB has been without a quorum for quite some time and currently has no sitting board members. So if anyone would like to jump in and discuss what that looks like, um, I know the MSPB is a very important issue.
2: Uh, sure. So um, as you mentioned, there, there has been uh, no confirmed members for uh, quite some time now. And although the Senate seems uh, getting close to uh, confirming some new uh, board members. There's currently an issue where uh, whistleblowers who uh, you know have adverse personnel actions taken against them, uh, they cannot have a stay of that action being taken because until now um, it required the action of one of the MSPD board members to uh, sort of stay that action until the MSPB can hear the case. Um, this this uh, provision, which was also a separate bill in the House, um, would essentially give that authority to, uh, I believe, the general counsel at the MSPB so uh, that these stays can continue while there is not a board member to authorize them.
0: Yes, that's one of the um, important things in the House bill. I do want to take a second to look a little bit more towards the Senate. Um, The Senate has been looking at some also really interesting provisions, uh, particularly one that, you know, I I work really closely with a lot of federal law enforcement who have been really concerned about relocation issues, uh, particularly the taxes that they've been hit with after relocating. Uh, So I know the Senate bill is offering some relief on that. Um,
4: Yeah, I think the provision would essentially – Uh, say that anyone who um, had relocated in the past, if they had to pay taxes on those relocation expenses, that they would, bottom line, be made whole or um, that issue would be resolved for them if they have to relocate specifically for work. And that was, I believe, an unintended consequence of the, uh, the tax act from a year or two ago.
0: Yeah, so hopefully they can get some relief there. The Senate has also been looking at some interesting stuff like security clearance reform, a couple of other issues. If any of you guys want to jump in with some of the Senate provisions. um...
4: Yeah, I would just say that uh, Senator Mark Warner, who's the vice chairman of the Intelligence Committee, has really been on this issue uh, for at least the past couple of years or so. And What he wants is to see a little bit more transparency in some of the processing times and adjudication numbers that come now from OPM and will come from DOD in the future. Um, There are also some interesting provisions that I think would accelerate policies that have been talked about but have just been slow to materialize at this point. So things like something called clearance in person. So you as an individual would be given a clearance based on the government's level of trust in you as a person, and then if you moved from an agency to another agency or an agency to a contractor, for example, that security clearance would go with you, and it wouldn't be an issue of having to reapply, be reinvestigated, and that sort of thing. So that's really um, a policy point that the administration wants to do. We just haven't seen it quite yet.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think there's been some general consensus that the actions that OPM has been taking so far to um, improve that backlog and, and speed processes up have really been working. So officials at the DOD have said that they don't have any intention of trying to mess with some of that, and they really do want to keep the good work that OPM started going so that that way they can have a much shorter processing time.
0: Yeah, I think the backlog has been a big issue for a long time, and uh, it's one of the first times that we've really seen some improvement on it. I think that's a good win for 2019. Um, now, turning away from the NDAA, uh, one more piece of hot legislation that has just kind of bubbled up in the last few days has been uh, some FOIA reform coming from the EPA. And I know I've seen a lot of articles on it recently. So if one of you can kind of get into that issue a little bit, I think it's something that's definitely been bubbling up to the surface.
2: Uh, sure. So uh, last month, the EPA uh, announced that it was changing how it handles FOIA requests in a number of ways. One, it gives uh, uh, political appointees more control over the process and the ability to you know, uh, approve or deny uh, document requests. It also requires all FOIA requests to EPA to come into headquarters, whereas previously you could... Make a request to a specific region or a specific program office outside of DC, um, and finally, um, they uh, made it such that uh, f- people who respond to FOIA requests at the agency can um, they can uh, basically redact part of a document that is responsive to a request because they think that part of the document is not responsive. Mm. Um, That's caused a lot of um, headache in the Senate uh, where a bipartisan group of lawmakers uh, say that that provision actually conflicts with existing case law, which says that you can't redact part of a document for those reasons. So there's legislation now to reverse that as well as a recent Supreme Court decision that weakened FOIA.
3: And they did all of this without a public comment period um, because they're arguing that it doesn't have significant impact on the public, which is causing some consternation in the Senate because a number of these would change how the public has to file FOIA requests in the first place.
0: So there's definitely going to be a lot of scrutiny on the agency over this change. Yeah, And that um, bipartisan legislation, I think, is definitely going to be something to watch moving forward as the lawmakers kind of try to balance out what the actions of these executive agencies are. Speaking of agencies, um, uh, this year has brought in a lot of internal reforms within agencies that have been uh, impactful for the federal community. And looking towards the rest of 2019, there are certainly going to be more. So We talked a little bit about the OPM-GSA merger, reorganization. I wanted to hit on some of the other uh, reorganizational efforts that have been going on particularly with uh, the USDA and BLM and the administration's attempt to decentralize these agencies. So if one of you guys wants to talk a little bit to that and what that has looked like.
4: Yeah, at the USDA, specifically two research bureaus there, the Economic Research Service and the National Institute of Food and Agriculture, a really interesting scenario there. Uh, Secretary Sonny Perdue announced a almost a year ago at this point, that they had the goal of moving the headquarters for those two bureaus somewhere else, and that they would go through a process to figure out what location they would move to. And they went about that process, they took a year, and I think in between that time, I mean, it caused a lot of anxiety for the employees that work there, knowing that they would be moved, but they didn't know where. And at the same time, like with the OPM GSA situation, not a lot of information from the department being given to Congress about its plans. There were questions about whether a cost-benefit analysis had really been done that said, yes, it makes sense to move these places out of the the D.C. area. And so just a month or so ago, Secretary Perdue announced that he would be relocating those headquarters to Kansas City and that employees had about 30 days to decide if they were going to stay or go. And basically gave them until September 30th to move there. And if they're not going to go, then they're pretty much going to lose their jobs. And so uh, both ERS and NIFA have formed collective bargaining units at this point with the American Federation of Government Employees. They're currently bargaining with USDA over some specifics, whether they could use telework maybe in the meantime or slow down the moving process itself. So that's where we are with USDA.
3: And about two-thirds of those employees have not said that they plan to move. So if they stay in the not moving category by the time the move-in date um, arrives, the agency is going to lose a significant number of its employees. Um, And on top of that, there's a lot of confusion because those two agencies don't actually deal with farmers a lot. A lot of their research uh, has more to do with policymakers. And so there's confusion as to why they're moving those specific groups of people out of D.C. in the first place.
2: Additionally, um, you know, uh, folks at the union have said that a number of employees have already left. So the exodus has begun.
0: Yeah, and um, I think those are two offices that have already had staffing problems in the past. And so there is a big risk of exacerbating those issues. Now, um, I want to move to BLM because I I do think there's been a little bit more transparency with the BLM move. Um, Bureau of Labor... uh,
2: um, land management land, yeah, <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> if one of you guys can speak a little bit more to that
2: well um i think it's a, a rather perplexing move to a lot of people because blm is already pretty decentralized the vast majority of its employees are out in the field and so the the actual number of employees that will be moving i believe to colorado yeah. um is not that much i think it's
4: Maybe two dozen? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's not many going to Colorado. And I think it was initially billed as we are relocating to Colorado. And as Eric said, it's really more about moving different pieces who, different groups of people who do one thing closer to maybe where some of their colleagues are already performing that work. Um, Idaho was mentioned. Oregon was mentioned. um, And I think at the same time interior when they announced this move maybe said some of the right things initially. I think they said things like we'll work with you over the next 15 months which is, you know, a significant amount of time to figure out where you're going to go and what that'll look like and um, you know, how we'll move you there. So maybe a little bit of a different tone from the USDA moves at the same time I think like Eric mentioned there's some concerns about you know, the people who are being left behind in D.C., and that is another group of people that will stay in D.C., and the interactions between those groups. And um, I think there was some concern over the people who do move to Colorado. They work with people who already do their jobs back in D.C. So I I think there's more to come on this one.
3: I think there's kind of this uh, interesting dichotomy at play where, The Trump administration and a number of lawmakers want to have more job-creating federal offices out in other parts of the country so that they can kind of spread the wealth of D.C. jobs elsewhere. Um, At the same time, because they're federal agencies, a number of those employees have to work in D.C. They have to have access to lawmakers. They have to have access to other agency leaders. And so you can only move but so much out of the D.C. area before it harms the actual operations of the government.
4: Yeah, and what hasn't really been said in a lot of these conversations is that 80 to 85% of federal employees already work outside of the D.C. area, and like Jesse was saying, at what point do we already have enough people out in the field and that we might need a concentration of people in D.C. working with lawmakers, secretaries, et cetera?
0: I think that's all really good points, and I think that's a great place to go into our final break. So, we are going to stop here for a word from our sponsors. When we return, we will wrap up this discussion. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network, 1500 AM. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Network 1500 AM. We are entering our last segment of the show. It has been a federal employee reporter roundtable talking about 2019, past, present, future. Uh, before we move on from agency reforms, I wanted to hit on the Taxpayer First Act, which for the IRS has been the you know the largest reform in. I think, decades, uh, which has been kind of exciting for the agency. Um, I would love to hear a little bit about what that has looked like and what that means for the IRS moving forward.
3: Yeah, well, I think um, the IRS has certainly struggled with some really aging infrastructure. I think they have one of the oldest IT systems in the government, I want to say 60 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's it's definitely been something that's a long time coming and that the agency Um, we'll probably need to be able to process a larger volume of online work.
4: Yeah, the IRS has had this whole conversation over the past couple years of how do we reimagine ourselves? And as more people expect more online services, how do we change the makeup of the agency to support that? And I think there have been other iterations of some of these ideas in the past that haven't really gone anywhere. They've had a variety of different names, but this is really maybe the first time we've seen it written down in some sort of legislation that would, in theory, if passed, be enforceable. Um, At the same time, I think it'll be interesting to see if Congress really takes this up as something that they're interested in, especially because many members of Congress have this view of the IRS as... You know, one that's involved in scandal. And I mean, you know, the IRS is not a particularly popular agency. So will lawmakers really take this up and support it? At the same time, I think there are new hiring authorities that the IRS could use and would help put them, you know, in a better direction.
0: Yeah, and I think that uh, with the technological advancement, the technological change, one of the things that I really liked about the Taxpayer First Act is that it includes some new cybersecurity protections. So as they kind of modernize that IT infrastructure, they're also focusing on cybersecurity and making sure it is as secure as possible for for the taxpayers. Um, And on that, in a very similar vein, we have seen a lot of changes at the Census Bureau as they move towards increased digitalization for the 2020 census. And that has kind of reformed the agency in a lot of ways. And so if you guys want to chime in on how they have been handling that change going into 2020.
3: Yeah, I think – According to the GAO reports on this change, they're heading in the right direction. Um, I think GAO has said that they need to work a little bit more on creating emergency plans for what if things go wrong and testing to make sure that all of these new systems that they're planning to spin up are going to work when they need to because it's kind of a short period of time where everything has to work really well or else it could be somewhat disastrous, especially because they're going to have significant traffic Uh, in a closed period of time for people trying to respond online.
0: Yeah, and I think that that, um, as we move towards the appropriations debate that we discussed earlier, both the Taxpayer First Act and how the IRS is mandating reforms and how the census is looking at reforms, it's going to be really important that they achieve the necessary funding levels in order to make, you know, run these tests for preparing for the 2020 census. um, And then the tax with the IRS, you know, making sure that they can implement a lot of these changes. I think funding is going to be really important for that.
2: And I believe the House uh, appropriations bills do include a pretty solid increase in funding for IRS.
0: Yeah. So some optimism moving forward. Uh, Now I want to kind of turn the attention for the last couple minutes of our show on to the second half of 2019, And I would really love for you guys to hit on some of the big things that federal employees should be looking out for, some of the things working either within agencies or within Congress that are going to be front and center in the next six months. So I think we talked at the top of
3: the show about wins for federal employees, um, but probably a loss that at least federal employee unions are feeling is that three executive orders that President Trump signed uh, in May of 2018 That were originally um, prevented significant sections of from being enacted uh, by a judge, uh, that has actually been overturned. And an appeals court has determined that the first judge did not have the authority to uh, hear the case in the first place. And so federal employees and federal employee groups are going to have to deal with a group of executive orders that are Limiting the time they're allowed to do union activities and causing for some pretty drastic renegotiations of their contracts, um, and also limiting telework that I think is going to cause a lot of challenges for those groups.
2: And yeah. go ahead. Um, earlier this week, actually, I uh, examined sort of what the uh, you know this three-judge panel that overturned the uh, court decision, uh, what sort of process they envisioned for unions to be able to challenge the, because they said that you can challenge them, but you have to do it in a very specific way. Um, I, and I looked at how that works through the uh, federal labor relations authority, which is the administrative body. And basically in every uh, scenario where uh, a union could challenge a concrete action by an agency to implement these, it would take probably at least a year, maybe two. So it's, it seems, unless the you know full court decides to rehear the case, which is unlikely, that uh, federal employee unions are going to be dealing with these provisions for some time.
4: And at the same time, though, I think they already have been, even during the period where the executive orders were, in theory, invalidated by the the district court. I mean, we've seen multiple examples of agencies negotiating with federal employee unions basically not coming to an agreement, giving up after a period of time, taking it to the federal service impasse panel, and then the impasse panel ruling in favor of the agencies. And a lot of the provisions that they hammered out on that panel were really similar to some of the provisions in the executive orders. And I almost wonder whether or not the whether the executive orders are, exist or not. The administration already maybe achieved what it wanted to by just having these ideas out there, as something that agencies could take on and try to initiate with the unions. And I think that these executive orders, like Eric said, the conversation is going to continue for a while. And I think it's already sucked the oxygen out of the room with a lot of the federal employee issues that we've been kind of looking at over the past year.
2: Um, Not to bring it back to the appropriations process again, but uh, that's going to be a very important issue as the House and Senate uh, discuss, you know, how to fund the government because the House has a provision in one of its appropriations bills that actually uh, prevents implementation of these FSIP mandated contracts unless um, both the union and the agency voluntarily agree to it. So, and that's retroactive and will affect uh, some of these uh, decisions we've already seen. Um, so that that could be an avenue for uh, Democrats and for the federal employee unions to try to um, avert the worst-case scenario for them.
0: And I know um, know, discussing these negotiations between unions and agencies, I know HHS has been kind of a hotbed of that lately because of the debate surrounding telework and kind of going from, I I believe now, um, employees are taking three to five days of telework and um, HHS is proposing bringing that down to one. And uh, I know that the unions have done some surveying. And there is definitely uh, both confusion and concern within agencies um, from both you know, non-union and union employees about whether or not they still want to work at these agencies. And I think it's important to realize that all of these agency reforms are going to have an impact on whether or not people want to join public service. And uh, so it's going to be an, an issue moving forward. Um, so before we wrap up, guys, I wanted to just hear from each of you. You know, I know, like Eric said, we keep bringing up appropriations and it is so hard to predict anything in this administration. But I, I know a lot of federal employees sitting at home are very concerned about the chance of another shutdown. And so I wanted to hear from you guys about what do what do we what what do we think you know? Do are we optimistic? Um,
3: yeah, I'm gonna say I think it's highly unlikely that we'll get another shutdown. I think the last one was a pretty hard hit, and everyone realized that. Um, and all of the indications that we've seen some, from Congress so far, I think, show that both parties really do want to find a solution before funding runs out, so that they don't have to deal with this again.
2: Um, I think. I am more optimistic now that there is a actual budget deal, but I don't know if you can come predict anything in this climate. Um, you know, last year we Congress was on track to ha- avoid a shutdown entirely, and then the White House sort of flipped the table. So, who knows what can happen?
4: Yeah, I would say I'm. Maybe a little bit more pessimistic than Jesse and Eric for the reasons that, that Eric just mentioned. If there is a shutdown, I think it'll look a little different than the last one. Hopefully, it won't be as long. Um, hopefully, you know, not as many people will be impacted and maybe the impacts on them will look a little different.
0: Awesome, guys. Well, I I think there is some hopeful optimism, cautious optimism might be a better word. Um, before we head out, guys, I want to give each of you a chance to let people know where they can find you, remind them about how they can follow your great work. Um, so I'm,
3: again, Jesse Burr with Federal Times. You can find my work at federaltimes.com and follow me on Twitter at Jesse underscore burr.
2: Again, this is Eric Wagner. I'm a staff correspondent and government executive, Uh You can find my stories at govexec.com, and uh, I never tweet.
4: (laughs) Uh, I'm Nicole Ogrisco. I'm a reporter with Federal News Network, and you can find my work at federalnewsnetwork.com. And uh, I tweet occasionally, um, and the handle is wfed.
0: Awesome, guys. Well, that is all the time we have for the show today. Jesse, Nicole, Eric, thank you guys so much for chatting with me. And thanks for to everyone who is joining us at home, on the road, podcast. Fed Talk is brought to you by the federal employment law firm, Shaw Bransford and Roth. Have a great weekend. And, you know, we'll see you in two weeks for a little bit more news.